Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker, and tonight I'm joined by Kimberly McIntosh, writer, commentator, Labour councillor, and author of the upcoming book, Black Girl, No Magic. Um, Kimberly, your first time as a co-host on Navarra Live. Thank you so much for being with us today. Tonight we have loads of stories for you, important ones. And we're talking about the teachers' strike. They've rejected their pay offer. We're talking about Suella Braverman, who has been, I mean, essentially race-baiting all weekend um, and lying. Uh, on the Laura Koonsberg show. And Keir Starmer is probably a pathological liar, a little bit of cod psychology there from me. First story. Teachers in England have overwhelmingly rejected a pay offer from the government following massive strikes in February and March. The National Education Union put the Tories offer to their members. This is the moment the result of the ballot was revealed at their annual conference in Harrogate this morning. And now for the very important figure. The number of our members that rejected the government's pay offer is 191,319. And I do have to tell you that that is an outstanding 98% of members that have rejected the vote. That is an extraordinary mandate. You can't, you can't get much higher than 98%. So overwhelming consensus among teen teachers, sorry, not teenagers. Um, so what was in the government's offer? What have they rejected? So the government proposed a £1,000 one-off payment to teachers for this school year and an average 4.3% pay rise next year. Now that's on top of the average 5.4% increase that was awarded last year. Now you might be hearing those numbers, think that sounds like a lot, but it really isn't. That's because teachers' pay has fallen by, on average, 23% since 2010. And the Institute for Fiscal Studies has said that even when including this pay offer, salaries for experienced teachers would still be 13% lower than they were when the Tories came to power 13 years ago. The NEU described the proposed payments as, quote, insulting and said that it had, quote, united the profession in its outrage. NEU General Secretary Mary Booster told Sky's Kay Burley why teachers had rejected the offer. We want a much better pay offer. We want a better pay offer for this year and better for next year because uh, £1,000, which, um, which isn't incorporated into pay, and 4.3% next year does nothing uh, to uh, compensate teachers for the huge loss in their earnings since 2010. Uh, they've lost more than any other occupational group in dispute with the government. It does nothing to keep teachers in our schools and it does nothing to uh, encourage graduates to become teachers. Pay is now so poor that it's become a massive problem simply getting teachers in our schools. It also seems that Education Secretary Gillian Keegan had tried to strong-arm teachers into accepting the offer, threatening to penalise them if they rejected it. That's a plan that now seems to have massively backfired. Kay Burley asked Mary Boosted what she thought of Keegan's tactics. Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, um, said, if you reject the offer, your members, they have, the decision will be passed back to the pay review body that offered uh, 3%, recommended 3%. Uh, and more than that, the £1,000 one-off payment that your members have been offered would be taken off the table. Well, our members knew that. We were very clear with them about the conditions under which the government was putting forward this offer. Uh, we made that very clear in information and they rejected it. And I think Gillian Keegan needs to stop the bullying tactics. She needs to start reading the room 
She needs to start listening to teachers. These are not union barons. It's not me making members reject this offer. They had a free private vote, either by text or by email. Uh, it wasn't a crowded room where people were intimidated or forced into rejecting. So they know what they're rejecting. They know it's not good enough. They know it will, no they, and, and crucially, they know it's not properly funded. They know that um, even this offer, if it is paid out, um, either children will have less equipment or there will be fewer support staff in schools. So they want a fully funded, much better offer. And Kay, if we are to keep our schools running, the crisis is now so poor that we have routinely children being taught by teachers who are not specialists in the subjects they're teaching. Government missing 41% of its secondary training targets this year. It looks likely to be doing just as badly next year. We can't carry on like this. We have to pay teachers properly, get more of them in the profession and get our schools working properly for the children and the young people who deserve a decent education. Teachers in Scotland and Wales called off their strikes after the devolved governments made serious offers to their unions. Wales has promised teachers an 11.8% rise over two years, plus a one-off 1.5% 1 payment this year. And in Scotland, most teachers will see a 14.6% increase in pay by January next year. Which begs the question, why do the Tories think that teachers in England are worth so much less than their Scottish and Welsh counterparts? Another issue the union had with the offer was that it wasn't fully funded. Mary Boosted said this. Not only is the offer on pay entirely out of step with the rest of the UK, it is not fully funded. Any EU analysis shows that between two in five and three in five of schools would have to make cuts to afford staff pay rises. Schools will continue to be stretched financially and it's students who will suffer. In response to the union's rejection of the deal, Gillian Keegan said this, the offer was funded, including major new investment of over half a billion pounds, in addition to the record funding already planned for school budgets. The NEU's decision to reject it will simply result in more disruption for children and less money for teachers today. Pay will now be decided by the independent pay review body, which will recommend pay rises for next year. Um, so that's her saying, look, negotiations over. Essentially, it's now going to go to the independent pay review body. Um, the National Education Union has announced new strike dates for the 27th of April and the 2nd of May. Meanwhile, three other teachers unions in England are still balloting on the government's offer. Earlier today, I spoke to Baz Ramaya. He's head of policy at the Centre for Education and Youth and the Cultural Learning Alliance. I began by asking him what would happen if Gillian Keegan refuses further negotiations. Well, the government have been, and Julian King in particular, have been playing hardball with these strikes. Uh, lots of familiar posturing about the need to uh, not uh, succumb to, um, you know, the demands of uh, the teaching unions. I think the fact that the teaching unions have already succeeded in getting the government around the table to discuss any pay offer is a sign that strikes have worked. The strikes that we've seen this year so far have been successful in terms of um, tilting the political will of the government towards finding a negotiated settlement here. Uh, there are still three weeks now between um, uh, today and the next set of strikes that the NEU have announced. So there's ample time there for the NEU to continue campaigning, to continue making its case to the government. And fundamentally, from the government's perspective, what they need to understand is that these strikes are not about solving a short-term issue related to teacher pay being poor during the cost of living crisis. It's only partly about that. What it's fundamentally about is the issue of recruitment and retention in our education system, which is the fact that we're not able to recruit, get enough new teachers into the classroom, and we're also not all able to hold on to the current teachers that we have in the classroom. Now, if we're not able to solve that problem, 
we're not just talking about a few days of disruption for strike days. We're talking about years of disruption to our young people's education from not having enough high quality trained professionals in the classroom to teach them the wide range of subjects that they need to learn. And if they're, if they're not able to access that education, that has enormous impact on our economy from a complete loss of uh, lots of critical human capital that's necessary for build, building the high skill, high wage economy this government often likes to board. So it's really important the government understands that this issue is not about uh, capitulating to a trade union. This is about setting the stage for having a country with a world class education system such that we can have a world class economy such that everyone who lives here is able to prosper. And in terms of recruitment and retention, I, as far as I understand it, workload and sort of work conditions is as big an issue as, as pay is. Um, can you talk about workloads and, and why teachers seem to be so stressed with them at the moment? So when we survey teachers who've left the profession, the two main reasons they always report for leaving the profession typically are um, workload and also pay. But we also do know that from uh, other research, for example, um, uh, salary sensitivity research, for example, that teachers are willing to take on a high workload if they feel like they're being uh, paid, if they feel like they're being remunerated fairly. Um, and when we, talk, when we talk about fair, we're not just talking about an amount here, right? Like it's about feeling that that amount is commensurate to the actual amount of work that they put in. So it's true that teachers do have a high workload. It's true that in England, compared to a lot of other high income countries, our teachers do have a particularly high workload. And a large, there's a larger part of that workload that involves um, uh, admin compared to a lot of the high, high income countries. Um, but it's also true that teachers in England do have lower on average wages, particularly early on in their career, compared to other high income countries. So while it's true that teacher workloads are high, I think there are some parts of the job that just require a high workload. And I think the main issue reason that workload is uh, magnifying as a problem is because it's not being uh, commensurate. There's not a commensurate increase in pay for teachers. And I suppose if, if the issue, as you describe it, there is that our teachers are paid less and also work more hours. Should we just take from that that our government doesn't put enough money into education? And I mean, looking at comparable countries as well, are, are we relatively stingy when it comes to the education system? It is really interesting. Like if we look at, um, you know, real terms funding for different strands of like the public sector, we've seen um, in the last 20 years, we've seen uh, spending on healthcare rise by 40 percent. But for education, we've only seen that rise by 5% according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So there is a massive issue in this country of underinvestment, particularly in education. I think you're right to point out that uh, per capita, our spend expenditure on education, uh, particularly the primary and secondary level, is also still relatively low compared to our, our other international peers. Now, it's difficult to unpick like the reasons for this, because I'm sure to people like us, Michael, it seems perfectly self-evident that if you want to have a prosperous, internationally competitive economy, then that requires a lot of investment in human capital and skills in education. And we saw some kind of, um, you know, some, some, some brief episodic interest in this um, from the government uh, with Rishi Sunak's, uh, you know, big talk at the very start of this year about making maths compulsory up to the age of 18, which I disagree with as a policy, but with some acknowledgement that it's really important that what happens in our schools has a huge impact on what happens in our economy. So fundamentally, the government needs to reconcile itself with the fact that all of its visions for the economy depend on uh, greater investment in the education system. And this is something they've clearly neglected for a long time. So does that mean that when a politician, and I suppose I'm you know, potentially intimating towards the Labour Party here, when they suggest the solution is not going to be more money, it's going to be reforms, is that missing the point? Essentially, does our education system just need more cash? I think when it comes to issues such as teacher pay, then um, 
you know, th there's little way of thinking of how to do this other than either redirecting uh, cash that's currently in the system or putting more cash into the system. And I think teacher pay is what a lot of this hinges on. I'm sometimes asked, like, you know, if I was in charge of the Department of Education, what would be the policy that I bring in? And that is one of them ab absolutely up there it, for me is, is improving teacher pay and improving the teacher pay deal because there's myriad research that shows that one of the biggest determinants determinants of a high quality education for young people is the quality of the teachers that they have. And we're simply not able to attract and hold on to the highest quality teachers if we're not offering a pay deal that is competitive with the wider market. So certainly when it comes to the issue of teacher pay, greater investment is necessary. And when we look at the other financial pressures that schools are facing that are massively limiting their ability to um, provide, for example, uh, resource intensive subjects such as the arts, music, etc., then we also need to see some control on the, uh, the, the, the fees that uh, schools are paying towards uh, their energy bills as well. So some kind of, um, kind of price controls there would also be incredibly helpful. But yeah, fundamentally, a lot this is going to require uh, further cash coming into the system. Let's go to our next story. The Tories have failed on the economy, they've failed on the NHS, and they've failed on crime, which means they're desperately grabbing around for any divisive topic they think they might be able to exploit to their advantage. What's clear is that what we've seen is a practice whereby uh, vulnerable white English girls, um, sometimes in care, sometimes who are in uh, challenging circumstances, being uh, pursued and raped and drugged and harmed by gangs of uh, British Pakistani men who've worked in child abuse rings or networks. We've seen institutions and state agencies, whether it's social workers, teachers, the police, uh, turn a blind eye to these, uh, to these signs of abuse out of political correctness, out of fear of being called racist, out of fear of being called bigoted. And as a result, thousands, we're not talking small numbers, we're talking large numbers, thousands of children have had their childhoods robbed and devastated. And there are many of these perpetrators still running wild, behaving in this way. And it's now down to the authorities to track these perpetrators down without fear or favour, relentlessly, and bring them to justice. So that was Suella Bradman making two very serious, big, grave claims, in fact. First, she's saying Britain has a particular problem of groups of Pakistani men grooming and sexually exploiting white girls. And second, that the reason these groomers have gotten away with it is because police forces don't want to be called racist. Now, obviously, very incendiary things to say, but let's look in turn at whether they're accurate. Now, on the first point, it is true, of course, that some high profile and absolutely appalling, like seriously appalling, grooming cases fit this pattern. So they include um, horrific grooming rings in Rochdale, Rotherham and Telford. But it's not clear that statistics back up Braverman's stronger point, right? So she's saying, this is a serious problem and it's particular to this community, particular to, to Pakistani men and white girls. Now, let's look at this from a Home Office report in 2020. Research has found that group-based child sexual exploitation offenders are most commonly white. Some studies suggest an overrepresentation of black and Asian offenders relative to the demographics of national populations. However, it is not possible to conclude that this is representative of all group-based child sexual exploitation offending. This is due to issues such as data quality problems, the way the samples were selected in studies, and the potential for bias and inaccuracies in the way that ethnicity data is collected. So essentially, she's making a very big incendiary claim one that is bound, you know, to cause or to, to, to further prejudice against Pakistani men. And it is not backed up by the statistics put together by her own department. You know, 
those statistics basically say it's completely inconclusive. We don't know, right? But but she she isn't saying it, it might be. She's saying this is the problem, and her own Home Office reports don't back that up. Now, a second claim made by Braverman is that some Pakistani men are able to get away with grooming because of concerns about racial sensitivities on the part of the authorities. Now, again, this seems like motivated reasoning to me. It's true. So she has a small point. There is a report from Louise Casey in 2015 that found in Rotherham at least misplaced political correctness had cemented the council's failures. So she said this was one aspect of many which led to systematic failures. But of course... It's not as if Britain's police forces would deal well with cases of child exploitation if only they were a bit less politically correct, right? That to me just seems like, I mean, frankly, nonsense, right? Now, again, relating to Rotherham, a 2022 report from the Independent Office for Police Conduct found that all the while the grooming gangs were causing misery for vulnerable children, the South Yorkshire police prioritised car crime over child protection. They didn't take it seriously. This is from an article in the Yorkshire Examiner. The IOPC report detailed how one parent concerned about their missing daughter said they were told by an officer, quote, it was a fashion accessory for girls in Rotherham to have an older Asian boyfriend and that she would grow out of it. In another case, a girl aged 15 had been raped in a Rotherham park in 2009. She was so badly injured she needed surgery. And even though medics and hospital staff suspected rape, this was dismissed by the police officers. The report said, we were told by the survivor's father that the officer dealing with the incident was insensitive and made no attempt to reassure the survivor, even suggesting to their father that this would teach the survivor a lesson. In another case, officers failed to prosecute a perpetrator found hiding under the bed with his victim while the girl was held for possession of a police truncheon. Now, this to me does not sound like a really effective police force who just happened to be a little bit too politically correct, right? I don't think any sane person can read that report and think, oh, the problem is they're worried about being called racist. No, the problem is these are, these are people who just completely dismiss the, the dreadful experience of young working class girls. Um, let's go to a quote directly from the IOPC report. Um, so they found, this is in 2022, many vulnerable individuals were seen as problems, not victims, especially children in care. We found many instances where crimes were not recorded when they should have been, including reports of sexual assault and sexual activity with a child. In one case, we were told that a 2001 child at a 2001 child protection conference, a detective constable who had investigated offences against a 12-year-old survivor commented that the survivor had provided consent in different sexual encounters, despite legislation being very clear that it is not possible for a child of this age to give consent. Now, this is incredibly concerning. I mean, when you listen to the accounts of the people who were caught up in these grooming rings, I mean, it, you cannot imagine something more horrific and, and more failings by every institution who has responsibility for these children. But the problem reading this, it's not political correctness. It's that you've got completely incompetent police officers who think that a 12-year-old can consent to sex, right, with, with, with a much older adult, right? So this is basic stuff. It's not like, oh, I'm Suella Bradman. I'm answering the tough questions to protect our girls. What we need to do is we need to make more racial generalizations. No, to, to protect Britain's young people, what we need to do is actually train the police to be able to deal with this stuff. By the way, this intervention also comes just two weeks after Louise Casey released an official report finding the Metropolitan Police, so our largest police force, to be institutionally racist, misogynistic, and homophobic. Now, if you look at that report, right, she is talking about terrible, terrible practices by the Metropolitan Police, you know, and obviously it was also prompted by one of 
Britain's most serial rapist being a police officer, and then the tragic, horrific case of Wayne Cousins raping, abducting, and killing Sarah Everard, right? If you have police forces in Britain who aren't properly dealing with sexual abuse, do we really, do we really think that this is about cultural sensitivity and political correctness? Or do we think that these police forces are institutionally incapable of dealing with crimes as sensitive as child sexual exploitation? I mean, one of those things seems more plausible to me. Um, Kim, I mean, I, I suppose there's a danger in taking Sawala Braverman too seriously here. I mean, these are absolutely incredibly serious crimes. But Suella Braverman, for some reason, has decided to bring up Pakistani grooming gangs now. And, you know, I, I don't think this is because she wants to have a serious rational debate about why um, children haven't had the support they need to have. But, I mean, to you, what's going on here? What, why did she make that intervention? So before I get on to the kind of why I have this intervention now, I want to start by saying that when we're talking about something as grave and as serious as child sex, sexual exploitation, we really want to be centering the victims and looking to what the evidence says and what the experts are saying. And earlier today, the chief executive of the NSPCC, whose charitable objectives and remit and expertise is on protecting vulnerable children, he said that this framing that's coming from Braverman is not only unhelpful, but could actually put vulnerable people and children at risk because it could mean that we're missing perpetrators because of this skewed focus. But if we're thinking about why I have this intervention now, I think something that's helpful to think about is the report that you mentioned from 2020 from the Home Office. So that report was actually not going to be made public initially because it was seen as not in the public interest. And it came to light because a journalist at The Independent Lizzie Dearden sent FOIs to the Home Office and asked, you know, what are the findings in this report? And was told that they're not in the public interest. Then campaigners um, took a stand and said, we believe it is in the public interest. And that report was published. And from what you were saying earlier, we know that that report actually said that the data on ethnicity is weak, that the overwhelming majority of perpetrators are white men, and that although we're not saying that there aren't group-based um, grooming gangs, um, what the report does say is that the evidence is not strong enough um, to suggest that that is the overall driving factor. And so I think when that brings us to why now, I think it does allow us to be cynical about the timing of this and to conclude that this is in relation to the Casey review coming out and could potentially be distraction. So instead of having a conversation about racism and about misogyny, in the Metropolitan Police, we're now having a conversation about um, Pakistani, particularly Muslim men, in a way that isn't in line with what experts are saying will protect vulnerable people. And I thought another thing that was interesting that you discussed was the um, effect that it had on care leavers. And it's made me think about the way that, um, for example, if we think about county lines and county lines gangs and how they organize, that they often use the racialized and classist tactics um, of the police against them. So they will target young people that are in care, knowing that their vulnerabilities might not be taken seriously by the very people that are meant to be there to protect them. And so I think what we're seeing is quite a cynical um, way of trying to move the conversation away from the changes that could actually improve the safety 
um, not just of young people, but of women and of people of color by looking at police reform, um, by having a focus on the victims and the real causes, which is what experts such as the NSPCC are calling for, and instead is using something incredibly grave and incredibly serious to score political points and to engage um, with the very um, right-wing base of the Conservative Party. So you mentioned the chief executive of the NSPCC there. We do have a clip um, of him speaking this morning to BBC Breakfast. She is responding to a particular form of sexual uh, exploitation, which the Prime Minister uh, has expressed a particular concern to do something about. And it's really important that uh, no stone is left unturned in in terms of identifying and understanding the causes of that particular form of abuse. But it's really important that by raising an issue such as race, um, we don't create other blind spots because uh, for sure there are many, many predators who prey on vulnerable children who are from a range of cultural backgrounds. And there are many victims who are not white girls who deserve our uh, our attention and support. So my plea would be is that we are blind to nothing as we address uh, issues of child sexual abuse. Now that to me sounded like someone taking this issue seriously, right? As Kim was saying, this is someone whose job is to look at issues of child protection. He is not someone saying, oh yes, the whole problem is that people are too woke and they don't want to blame the Muslims, right? He's saying, no, the issue is we have to look at child sexual exploitation wherever it happens, by whatever race, whoever the victims are, this whole idea that we just focus on one group, for one, it's completely unfair too, it's, you know, it's incredibly dangerous for a variety of reasons, but two, it can let everyone else off the hook. If everyone's saying, oh, it's, it's, it's a Muslim male problem, then you're taking your eye off the ball of everyone else for some arbitrary reason because the Tories want to win some votes. Like, it's deeply, deeply cynical. Of course, Rishi Sunak is backing his Home Secretary, though. All forms of child sexual exploitation carried out by whomever are horrific and wrong. But with the specific issue of grooming gangs, we've had several independent inquiries look at the incidents here in Rochdale, but in Rotherham and Telford. And what's clear is that when victims and other whistleblowers came forward, their claims were often ignored by social workers, local politicians, or even the police. And the reason that they were ignored were due to cultural sensitivity and political correctness. Now that to me just seems like a a flat out lie, right? So he is correct that when whistleblowers talked about these sort of cycles of abuse and the fact that they were being ignored, political correctness was cited as one, one of many reasons for failure on the part of the authorities, right? One of many reasons. But for some reason, the Tories think that this is the only thing we should focus on. And Rishi Sunak, I mean, the obvious interpretation there is that everything would have been fine and dandy if only the police weren't so woke, right? Now, that's just ridiculous. Now, the police are terrible at dealing with cases of sexual exploitation, regardless of the ethnicity of a perpetrator or the ethnicity of the victims. Now, this is obvious. This is obvious. You don't have to go deep into the stats to find this, right? So this is shocking. Do you know the charge rate for reports of rape to the police in England and Wales? So the percentage of people who get reported to the police in England and Wales as rapists, how many of them get charged? 1.3%. Now, take a moment to consider how serious that is. One in 100 reports of rape Only one in 100 reports of rape to police in England and Wales end in someone being charged. So 99 out of 100, no one gets charged. Essentially, the person 
gets away with it, or the, the person who is alleged to have committed the crime gets away with it. It doesn't go to court. You know, there isn't a, a jury case. Presumably, if they're only getting one percent to the to, to the point of charge, it's not particularly well investigated, right? That's what what you take from that. For child sexual exploitation, it's slightly higher, but not much better. Eleven um, percent. Um, of allegations of child sexual exploitation end in charge. Again, this isn't being found guilty. This is ending in charge. Nine of every 10 won't end in a charge. And we're supposed to believe that political correctness is the problem. So seriously, you look at a police force, only one in 100 cases of rape are going to charge. Oh, what's the problem? Oh, I, see, I think actually probably it's just the police are too woke. It's probably there's all these cultural insensitivities, which means these things aren't getting charged. If the numbers are that stark... It, it, it seems to me that there is not a single police force in the country which is doing this properly. And now we're saying, oh, it's because it would, it's, it, 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 it would be laughable if it wasn't so damaging, right? Political correctness is, is clearly not the problem here. The interventions from Suella Bravman and Rishi Sunak are ostensibly to promote a new government policy to make it a legal requirement for people working with children to report suspected abuse. Um, they're already saying, um, I've seen lots of people say this is already a professional requirement. They want to make it a legal requirement. Um, that was one recommendation from a 2022 independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. Um, she's also said a police task force will be set up to deal specifically with child sexual exploitation. Um, you heard Sunak repeat that as well. Um, Labour's Yvette Cooper supported those policy moves but she said that Suella Braverman, in her language, in her interventions, was once again trying to shift blame. Sadly, we have a Conservative Home Secretary who always looks for other people to blame but herself or but the government that's in power. The measures that the minister seems to be announcing today on specialist police um, support and also on reporting of child abuse are ones that Labour was calling for 10 years ago and the government repeatedly refused to introduce them and refused to act. If they were serious about tackling child sexual abuse and exploitation. Where is the strategy on tackling the online grooming and abuse? That is escalating and is accelerating fast. Where is their response to the full report of the independent inquiry into child sexual ex exploitation and abuse, which looked at exploitation by organised gangs, but also looked at institutional abuse, including in church and religious organisations and in care homes? And where is the action to speed up court cases, which are currently taking years over the last seven years, while the Conservatives have been in power, the number of prosecutions and convictions for child sexual abuse has plummeted. That is a devastating record, and it is the Conservatives' record. I thought that was a very reasonable intervention, and Yvette Cooper is, is right. Labour has been calling for these measures for a while, as has Keir Starmer, who you know only became an MP in 2015. But as you can see here, um, when he left his job as Director of Public Prosecutions, he said... Um, that we should prosecute professionals who stay silent on child abuse claims. At the time, the coalition government disagreed with Keir Starmer. So this is a statement from the Department of Education at the time. Guidance is already crystal clear that professionals should refer immediately to social care when they are concerned about a child. Other countries have tried mandatory reporting and there is no evidence to show that it is a better system for protecting children. In fact, there is evidence to show it can make children less safe. So there's been a, a U-turn in the Home Office. But I mean, I wouldn't attack them for that. I mean, there's been a bunch of reports in the meantime. I'm not an expert enough to say whether or not a legal requirement on social workers is a positive or a negative thing. I mean, the impression I get is that 
people are already reporting stuff, right? And the issue seems to me less about people at the grassroots speaking to someone and thinking, oh, I can't be bothered to report this because I don't take it seriously. The issue seems more to be that when you do report it to the police or to the authorities, they find an excuse not to deal with it. Or they're so overworked and so overstretched that they don't have the time to deal with it. And so to sort of make themselves feel better about not being able to deal properly with their caseload, they sort of say, oh, well, this is just a problem child anyway. We can't, we can't expend this much resources on, on someone who has a difficult background anyway. Let's try and find a, a more um, believable victim for us to focus our attention on, right? It, it, it seems to me that reporting here is a little bit of a sideshow and that the issue is what happens once you do report that there is a safeguarding issue. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. Again, I would want to reiterate that I also don't feel that I have strong enough expertise to be certain on this. But I would say that it's highly unlikely that people um, are not reporting and that a legal requirement is needed on, say, public body staff to ensure that they do report. And what would be more realistic is actually that when reports are being made, that the action isn't being taken or that the um, austerity measures we've had over the past 10 years, the increase in social workers' caseloads and um, the number of social workers leaving the profession, for example, would be the cause behind action not being taken when these cases are being reported. Again, you know, I'd need to do more research to be sure of that, but that seems to be much more likely the case, in my opinion. I think it's probably a sort of all of the above, right? So as I say, I mean, a legal requirement or not a legal requirement, I feel like I'm I'm not in a position to say. I think what's very clear, though, is there were 20 recommendations from the 2022 sort of very long public inquiry into child sexual exploitation. To me, this looks like they chose the cheapest one, right? Because obviously, if you want to properly train and, and fund social services, if you want to make sure that police are properly trained and that there are accountability systems whereby not only are they capable of dealing well with this kind of thing, which at the moment they don't seem to be, but if they fail to deal with this kind of thing properly, there are consequences. And mm. that that will have that will that will create some opposition within the police force because they don't like to be held to account. It will mean that you have to tax the rich a bit more so that we can fund social mm. services properly. All of these things are just a bit too difficult for our conservative mm. government. Say, Is there a little tweak to the law we can make and everyone will shut mm. up? And it, it seems to me they've they've said, let's choose the tweak to the law bit. And then also, mm. aha, let's also use this as an opportunity to stoke racial hatred against Muslims. To me, it seems like, yeah, they've gone for this sort of cheap, easy headline, uh, you know, supposed solution. And I, I just don't believe that a government that's implemented austerity for the past 13 years and decimated social services and now seems to be sort of distracting from the fact that the police are institutionally racist and misogynist is going to be able to deal with this by tweaking the law. No, not at all. It is just a much easier sell and a much easier win for a conservative government than the hard work of investing in our social services. So it's something that I um, did for one of my essays in my book actually was interview carers and do research um, around what's going on with social work. And a lot of the research suggests that what's happening is that with the increase in caseloads, we're seeing a lot more bias within the system. So we're seeing kind of the base prejudices that individuals hold um, having adverse effects on the vulnerable children that they're there to to try and serve and support and protect. So it isn't a surprise to me that we're seeing, say, children that are in the care system being missed by our public services because they're not being read as vulnerable in the way that they should be, or even being read as um, kind of promiscuous or um, not seen as real victims. And when you defund services and the way that we have over the past 10 to 12 years, this is where we end up. But to 
a conservative government, you know, that that's hard work. That's going to take reform. That's going to take increasing staff pay. That's going to take recruitment drives to increase the number of social workers we have. That's going to take um, reform of um, our police services. And that's something that I don't believe that they're willing to do. And it's much easier to announce something simple, like a small tweak to the law, than it is to do the real work. Let's go to our next story. Home Secretary Suella Bradman has appeared on the BBC's Sunday with Vera Koonsberg, where she evaded difficult questions about the Home Office's scheme to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda, and where she also may have told a big fat lie. Surprise, surprise, what a shocker. Is it safe to send refugees to Rwanda from Britain? You sound like you are completely convinced of that. I am convinced that it is safe to send refugees to Rwanda. Now, yes. the reason I ask that is that in 2018, a group of refugees in Rwanda did stage a protest because their food rations were reduced. Do you know what happened to them? I'm not familiar with that particular case. I'm not familiar with that particular case. What a surprise. You do have a relevant job. You have a job where it would be useful um, to be familiar with that case. Let's look at the case Koonsberg was referring to. In January 2018, food rations at the Kaziba refugee camp in Rwanda were cut. The camp is home to over 17,000 Congolese refugees who have fled from the Democratic Republic of Congo into Rwanda. Millions of Congolese civilians have left their homes after militias linked to the Rwandan government terrorized them. There have been massacres and entire villages have been burned to the ground. After the food rations were reduced, around 4,000 unarmed refugees left the camp to protest at a UNHCR office. A day after they arrived on February the 22nd, 2018, the police surrounded the protesters, telling them to separate women and children from the men. Moments later, the police opened fire on the refugees. 13 were killed and many more were injured. Two pregnant women miscarried. In the following week, some 60 refugees were arrested, with others reporting harassment from the police to stop them cooperating with international investigators. Right, so that's the pretty horrific, brutal case that Bradman claims not to be familiar with. As I say, this should really be her area of expertise, and could it really be the case that she didn't know? Well, last year, after her predecessor Priti Patel introduced the Rwanda scheme to the House of Commons, the killing of the refugees was raised at least three times. She knows that serious concerns have been raised about Rwandan restrictions on political freedom, on the treatment of people who are LGBT, on the fact that 12 refugees were shot by the authorities in 2018 for protesting against food yeah. cuts. How can he say Rwanda is a safe country when 12 refugees protesting about cuts in food rations were shot dead by security forces? The minister has spent the last days talking up the human rights records of the Rwandan government. And yet the previous minister expressed, and I quote, concerns around civil and political rights Absolutely. in Rwanda. Absolutely. In 2018, 12 refugees were shot dead yeah. during protests about cuts to food allowances. The massacre was also reported in the right-wing press when the scheme was announced. This is from The Telegraph in June last year. The Rwandan police have used heavy force in the past to keep refugee protests under control. In 2018, police dispersed a group of 3,000 refugees protesting over UN food cuts with live gunfire killing at least eight people. And the Home Office's own official advice on Rwanda discusses the killings. This is from the Home Office's country policy and information note for Rwanda. Sources report that refugees have sometimes protested at conditions in the camps. The Rwandan government has taken steps to contain the demonstrations and prevent disruption and violence, but reportedly using excessive force in some instances. 
the last protest at which they allegedly did so took place in February 2018 when a number of refugees were arrested and killed. And the Home Office's note on human rights in Rwanda says this, in February 2018, 12 Congolese refugees from Kaziba camp were killed when police opened fire on protesters demonstrating against a cut in food rations. Finally, on the 19th of December last year, the High Court, which ruled that the Rwanda scheme is legal, discussed the 2018 refugee killings extensively. This is just one example. The claimants rely on what happened in 2018 when refugees from neighbouring countries at Kaziba refugee camp protested at the conditions in the camp. It has been reported, for example, by Human Rights Watch. The police who entered the camp in response to the protest used excessive force. They fired on the refugees and some were killed. You can't necessarily expect a home secretary to know what's on every document that's on the Home Office website. But this is a policy which she has made. She is constantly, constantly talking about this plan to ship refugees to Rwanda. Yet, this key part of information, which has come up again and again in Parliament, come up again and again in the press, come up again and again in court cases, she oh, doesn't know about. Doesn't know about. Now, that's either a lie or it's incompetence, right? Here's Koonsberg again. If something terrible like that happened, where 12 refugees were shot at and lost their lives. If something awful happened when refugees were sent from the UK to Rwanda, would you end the policy? What I will also say is our legislation makes provision for those extreme circumstances whereby if there is something unforeseeable, uh, serious and irreversible harm, we, someone would be able to challenge the decision. We consider that to be a very outside chance, a very extreme situation, but there's always allowance in the legislation to, to, uh, to allow for that. So there's an allowance to challenge the scheme after there's been serious and irreversible harm, like the state murdering refugees. What a relief. If it happens, then you can appeal. Another thing Bradman was clearly unfamiliar with was the actual terms of the deal she'd signed, or at least she wasn't very keen to talk about those terms in detail. That became apparent when Koonsberg asked her this. In the deal as well, which we've had a good look at it, there is also a suggestion that the UK will resettle some of Rwanda's most vulnerable refugees. How many people do you expect will come to the UK from Rwanda under this scheme? No, we don't foresee that happening. Well, our, hang on, it's, our in, it's, in the, it's in the agreement. It says the participants will make arrangements for the United Kingdom to resettle a portion of Rwanda's most vulnerable refugees in the United Kingdom. Our arrangement is very much focused on uh, people who are coming to the UK from safe countries and unlawfully, and then be re being resettled to Rwanda. But it's in the, it's in the scheme, agreement then. So why did you is, sign it if it's, if it's in the agreement? That's what it says is, in black and white. Our scheme is uncapped. It means that uh, we can potentially send over several thousands of people from the UK to Rwanda. When I went to Rwanda, I saw with my own eyes how Rwanda is getting ready to receive these and, people. And you have said that, but is there a limit on the number of people that Rwanda could send back to this country? Because you've signed an agreement that says in black and white, the United Kingdom will resettle a portion of Rwanda's most vulnerable refugees. The, 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 the balance and the reality of this agreement is that Rwanda is taking uh, people from the United Kingdom. We are resettling people who have arrived here illegally and therefore will be removed or relocated to Rwanda. As I've said, I've just seen the accommodation that's in train. They're building the housing that will be used to uh, accommodate people who are coming from Rwanda. We've, I've visited a school that will be used and, to support and, and the education And you've said needs. that, but it is clearly here in black and white that the agreement you have signed also says that the United Kingdom might have to take refugees from Rwanda. 
But I, I think our viewers will hear that you don't want to address that point. Well, so no, the, the, the arrangement is very clear. On a balance and overwhelmingly, Rwanda will be taking people from the United Kingdom, not the other way around. Okay. Why would you sign a deal with any Tory minister at the moment, right? She, she's saying in the deal it says this, that the UK is going to have to take some refugees from Rwanda in exchange for the refugees we're sending. I mean, I don't like talking about this, like trade. Um, but, you know, mm -hmm. that's that's the reality of the agreement anyway. And then Suella Bradman's like, well, that might be what the agreement says, but I'm here to tell you that's not going to happen. If I was the Rwandan government watching that, I'd be like, this is not someone who is negotiating in good faith. It, what a car crash. Mm. What a car crash of an interview. I, If I were... a someone from the Rwandan government and saw that, I would be shocked. And I think it really speaks to the lack of um, commitment or respect for, for any evidence for, and often for truth. You know, at what point did Braverman answer any of the questions that she was actually asked? She just repeated the same lines. And ultimately, it's to signal to the base that we're being strict and firm on migration. And the detail doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to matter at all. But it also shows the lack of respect um, to R Rwanda and officials who I'm sure will be watching this and will be, I'm sure there'll be some chaos behind the scenes going on right now. And I feel for the civil servants at the Home Office that are probably frantically having to be in communication their Rwandan counterparts and the emails that are being sent right now. But I think it just shows the lack of seriousness that is coming from the Conservative government at the moment and a lack of seriousness, particularly around the Rwanda policy, which is not evidence-based and is really just there to signal that um, the Conservatives are going to be tough on migration. But what I'm not understanding is... Um, how the Labour Party will respond if this policy is seen to be quote unquote um, successful, not in the terms that I would um, call it a success, but if they're able to frame it in a way um, that they say that we have say less small boats coming. We know that everything around the illegal migration bill is going to result in people moving in other ways. So whether that's um, moving on lorries or an increase in um, people smuggling and modern slavery, people will continue to move regardless. But if this is being able to be framed as a success in some way, regardless of the detail, regardless of the truth, then I think there are some concerns about how um, the Labour opposition will be able to respond to that. Next story. Is Keir Starmer a pathological liar? The evidence is certainly mounting. This was Keir Starmer in 2020 during his leadership campaign. I'm not going to rank Jeremy Corbyn. Well, Clive Lewis gave him six out of ten. He's Come a, on, you can, he's a, he's you, 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 look, you've been around long enough to, to, to rank Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. You sat alongside him. What do you think he, I'm he not, scores? I'm not going to rank Jeremy Corbyn. He's a colleague, he's a friend, and he's led us through some really difficult times in the Labour Party. And I don't want to trivialise that by giving him a number out of ten. I respect him um, and thank him for what he's done, but I'm not going to get involved in that. This was Keir Starmer just after he won that contest. I want to pay tribute to Jeremy Corbyn, who led our party through some really difficult times, who energised our movement, and who's a friend as well as a colleague. But this was Keir Starmer today on LBC. What's your personal relationship towards him, Sir Keir? Oh, I haven't spoken to Jeremy Corbyn for 
two and a half years now. So, is he a friend? Was he a friend? No. I mean, I, as I say, I haven't spoken to him for two and a half years. In 2020, um, he was a friend, Sakir. Well, I worked with him because, you know, I mean, well, let, let's just run through it. I didn't vote for him in 2015 when he stood no. as leader. Um, I wanted him to stand down in 2016. He, he won again. I again didn't vote for him. But I did take the view that we needed an effective opposition and that I shouldn't just walk off the stage. Right. Um, but in but January then, 2020, quotes, Jeremy Corbyn is a colleague. He's a friend. He's led us through some really difficult times in the Labour Party. Yeah, he, he's not a friend. He did, uh, yeah, because Nick, very straightforwardly, my oh, oh, tomorrow is the three-year anniversary of me being leader, and the very first thing I said, Nick, when I became leader, is I would root out anti-Semitism by its roots. I apologise for what had happened, and I asked for those that had been most hurt by what had happened in relation to anti-Semitism, simply to give me the space to show what I could do. I didn't think I could ask them for their support. I said, give me the space to show that I mean what I say. I meant what I said. Um, and that is why Jeremy Corbyn lost the whip when he responded as he did to the terrible report on anti-Semitism okay. that we had and why he now won't stand as a Labour and, candidate. And he was never a friend? No, not in, the, I mean, not in the sense that we were, you know, went to visit each other or anything like that. I worked with him as a colleague, but um, as I say, I haven't spoken to Jeremy now for two and a half years. What's happened in Keir Starmer's life where the definition of friend has completely changed? So in, in 2020, friend meant whatever relationship he had with Jeremy Corbyn. Now, friend means that they visited each other's houses all the time and had tea together, right? It's sort of changed the goalposts somewhat. I mean, the, the, the obvious thing here is, right, you know, I understand why, obviously I don't think he should have blocked him from being an MP, but I understand why Keir Starmer isn't on the radio every day singing the praises of Jeremy Corbyn, right? I think it's fine for him to say, look, I disagreed with his response to the EHRC, blah, 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 even if I don't. I think it's, you know, it'd be fine for him to say that. I disagree with that. But, you know, there were some good things about him. Clearly, I said he was my friend in 2020. I'm not going to be so dishonest to, to, to now say that wasn't true. You know, I'm not going to take you for fools. Who do you think I am? Obviously, if I'm on camera in 2020 and saying he's my friend, I'm not now going to deny he's my friend. But obviously, we've got massive disagreements. And, you know, to the extent that we've fallen out, we haven't spoken in three years. You know, that would be honest, right? That would be true. Just saying, even though you called him a friend twice on camera in 2020, and now he was never your friend. You know, it's, it, it's perfectly coherent to say he's not my friend anymore, but he was. You can't just completely turn back time and say, oh, no, he was never my friend. No, no, no. It's on camera. You called him your friend crazy this guy but he gets away with it right he, he gets away with being so dishonest he also said um you know i meant what i said i meant what i said that's when he was talking about um the anti-semitism row in the labor party but can you ever believe that this guy means what he said when he will say something on camera and then not three years later say i've changed my mind you know which is you know with the pledges for example i think it's pretty fucking annoying that someone can make all these pledges and then say whoops changed my mind but this is a, this is like him saying i never made those pledges and then you put them in front of him. No, 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 I didn't say that. I didn't say that. We, we, we can see you said it. Why lie? Why lie? I don't know, maybe he's a pathological liar. I think he's just, well, I mean, I think what he is is a self-interested guy who knows he can get away with this because if you are Keir Starmer, if you are a centrist, new Labour type person, then the media will let you get away with it. Jeremy Corbyn could not have got away with this stuff, but Keir Starmer can. Next story. Callers into LBC have been discussing their divorces. I didn't listen to the whole show, even though it's one of my favourite topics. But no doubt there were all the usual reasons for marital breakdown, cheating, finances, boredom, etc. Then one man called in, citing a pretty unusual cause for the collapse of his marriage. David in Northwich, a political element broke your marriage up, David. Is that right? 
Oh yeah, that's yeah, that, that's right. And thanks for taking me call. Yeah. What happened? Um, well, it, she made a fool of me for all of our married life, really. Go on. Because, well, because I've always been compassionate and caring about people, and I thought she was the same. And it transpired after a big row we had over refugees and Rwanda and stuff that she said she's she's always voted conservative. And it's. It's disgusting, really, isn't it? Well, no, it's not disgusting to vote Conservative. Um, it, oh, come on, come on. Well, hang on. No, David, it isn't. It no. isn't. No, well, but, well, it is really, isn't well, it? Well, not always. I, no, not always. Because is it a specific element of Conservative policy currently that she was favouring that, that, that made things difficult, or was it just generally? Well, if you look what's happened since 2010, ultra-austerity, which killed hundreds a thousand of people and then everything that's happened in between and all this time when I thought she was she, I thought she was like me who cares about people then she doesn't really care about anybody but herself maybe and it, it, it was like uh, it was disgusting it's disgusting and it? had she told you she was voting what let do you do you vote Labour I, I've, I've always voted Labour yeah and has she did she tell you she voted Labour um she never actually come right out and said, but we, we'd stood in the polling booth together and we voted together. I always assumed she voted Labour. <laughs> I'm sorry. I sh I'm, apologies for laughing. I'm just, I'm, I'm not laughing at you, I promise, David. I'm just seeing this image of two people in the polling booth, you know, and you just assume she was voting the same as you. But, I mean, she's allowed to vote any way she wants. You might not agree with it, but is it a reason to leave yeah, to, but, to end your marriage? But don't you think that's disgusting? Voting Conservative all these years. And she's pretending she's compassionate and she cares about people and this and blah, blah, blah. And everything she's always said is if she's a, a compassionate, caring people when, when she isn't. Now, I never know with those things when someone sort of phones in with a particularly neat story. It's a very good story to make a political point, whether or not it's a prank. Could be, could be true. I don't know. I suppose on the broader point, Kim, would you get a divorce if you discovered that you've been sleeping with the enemy? So I'm obsessed with this story and this caller. I'm going to assume it's not a prank, but if I found out that I had been married to someone who had been voting conservative, it would depend if it had been hidden from me. You know, I'm quite upfront about my values and my politics. And, you know, I'm someone who has it on their hinge profile, you know, so everyone who's reading it kind of knows what I'm about. So I think I'd find it very surprising if I ended up married to someone and secretly they were conservative and had been voting conservative. But to then want to divorce them, I think I'd need to know why they had voted conservative and on what grounds. And if it had anything to do with immigration, anything to do with refugees, anything to do with race and racism. Well, I'm actually just going through loads of different policy areas now. So actually, I think we can conclude that I probably would get the divorce. How about you? Not a, what would, you what do? would be the reason that you would tax? Maybe they just really want low tax. I don't know. Mm, the Tories have quite high tax question. now. I think, I don't know. I think I, I don't actually know many Tories. I was thinking about this because if you are, you know, under 50, it's very unlikely you're going to meet mm. a conservative that is of an age that you might date. 
So, you know, a lot gets made in the media of sort of like this, oh, li lefty liberals, they're so intolerant, they don't mm. have any Tory friends. It's like, I can't find any Tory friends. Yeah? It's, not, it's not like I'm actively looking, but I do sometimes think it would be interesting to know more Tories to get an idea of sort of the thought process of conservatives. But, you know, there aren't, there aren't many 33-year-olds who vote Tory. So I don't know where, no. where, to, where to find these people. So it's, it's almost a, a decision one doesn't have to make because, mm. you know, Unless, yeah. unless you're looking for uh, your dating pool is is retired homeowners, it's going to be <laughs> difficult to find anyone who does vote a different way. <laughs> Nothing against retired homeowners; it's just not really my dating pool for now. Not mine either at the moment. Would have benefits, and though, I is, suppose. I mean, I would get a house, and <laughs> you know, I'm currently in private rented, so that would be pretty Same. sweet. But there's that King's research. I don't know if you've seen it, which brands kind of younger people and people with more progressive politics as. Um, less tolerant because they say they don't even really want to have friendships with people who are less progressive. But again, it comes to values. You know, I personally don't want to say have a friendship or relationship with someone who doesn't believe in the Black Lives Matter movement because it affects my day-to-day -day life. And I think sometimes that can get framed or mixed up in, um, oh, you don't tolerate people who don't have the same beliefs or um, values as you, when really we're talking about things that directly impact not only ourselves, but some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And I'm not embarrassed to say that that really matters to me. And I don't think that makes me intolerant. That said, you're right. I don't meet many people that don't um, vote for a progressive party. Even people I knew from earlier life, the Tories are so bad now that even they don't vote for them. So I don't really buck upon this issue. But I do I do know some people in my circles who are, um, have or are getting with um, people that vote conservative. So there are some people doing it. So we might get another caller in 10 years who is going through the same thing as this guy. <laughs> Maybe you can introduce me. I want to expand my friendship, Paul. Introduce me. To I, I, I will, I will. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so I also should say every time... Um, we mention retired homeowners on this show. I need to be clear that while retired homeowners do disproportionately vote for the Conservatives, there are also a lot of retired homeowners who watch Navarra Media, fantastic politics, lots of Corbynites among that cohort, lots of people who support Navarra Media. So we would not want to cast aspersions about retired homeowners in general. Um, but the, the voting patterns do show that there is some association, even if it's very far from universal. Um, Kim, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on tonight's show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. It's been really fun. Yeah, no, we'll definitely have you back soon. Um, and thank you, everyone in our audience, for watching tonight. We'll be back tomorrow. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>